Hello and welcome to the Brain Care Podcast, a practical and impactful series of snappy episodes on how to optimize your mental health and performance so you can reach your full potential. My name is Dan Murray-Serta, and I'm the co-founder at Heights. We make smart supplements and clever content with the world's leading experts to help you take care of your brain so it can take care of you. Gina Rippon is a leading expert on all matters of gender, but particularly that of the brain, as she was the head of neuroimaging at Aston University Centre for Cognitive Neuroscience, and she literally wrote the book, The Gendered Brain. So, you're in for a treat, and without further ado, welcome to today's working guest, Gina Rippon. Why don't you take us through the gendered brain concept? Like, where did that even stem from? Okay, um, well, probably at this point, ought to draw attention to the fact that there is a difference between the term sex and the term gender. And certainly where this started, which was slightly further back than than my career, at the end of the 18th, beginning of the 19th century, you just talked about sex in terms of biological sex. And at that point, it's when we were starting to understand that the brain uh, was really the control centre of of human behaviour. And the researchers at that point believed very strongly that biological sex uh, determined particular brain characteristics, etc. And the belief that your biological sex determined your role in life, which we would now call gender, but they didn't really have a word for it then, uh, was very powerful. So there was just a single term sex. Fast forward to the sort of 1980s when there was a a, a second wave of feminism, which was uh, very much focused on the idea that there was some kind of societal control over who could do what. And that's when the term gender came in, because there was the idea that there were um, roles which were differentiated by the sex of the people who did them. And that was called uh, gender. And it's a bit like the, the nature versus nurture. And then we fast forward to the to this century when we're, we're talking more about how entangled sex and, and gender are as concepts. So, so right at the beginning, it was the idea that whatever it was that made bodies different, and at that point they didn't know, but they were clearly aware that men and women had different bodies, whatever it was made their bodies different also made their brains different. So that was one starting point. The other starting point was actually a kind of justification of what they were doing. So they looked at society and they looked at brain science and they said for brain science to have credibility, it needs to be able to explain how people live their lives, what people see in the world around them. And one thing they see is that men and women are different. And particularly at the beginning of this uh, hunt, what I call the hunt, the difference agenda, they saw that women were inferior. So they looked at society, they looked at financial standing, political power, property owning, anything. And they said, well, women are inferior. So we as brain scientists need to try and understand what it is that makes women's brains inferior. We need to come up with some kind of measure which can prove that this is why women shouldn't be educated, shouldn't be given political power or financial independence, etc. So that was really the the starting point. So they were working backwards from the status quo, if you like, and saying men and women are different, so let's find out why. So that's when you start to get very strange ways of bearing in mind that all of the theories that actually emerged at the time and really, if we look carefully, still inform a lot of what we think about uh, the brain today they arose at a time when we couldn't study the brain. You could take a skull and fill it with bird seed and weigh it and say, 
there must have been quite a big brain went in that skull or here's a, a miniature brain uh, which must have gone in this skull, etc. You could look at the consequences of forms of brain damage and understanding that had been around since the times of, of Greek uh, medicine, etc. Or you could guess that there was some kind of disease which was affecting some people's behaviour. But you couldn't look at the brain. But, you know, that didn't stop the early scientists. They were going to come up with these great measures. So we had phrenology, which felt bumps on the skull. We had craniology, which had a whole set of really weird measures looking at the um, relationship between the angle of your forehead and the angle of your jaw or your left lobe and the tip of your chin, etc. Got up to about 5,000 different measures. And that, they said, allowed them to draw conclusions about the structures of the brain or, or what the brain was like in, inside the head. But this, the uh, measure of success of these metrics was that they proved that at the top of any scale they came up with was white, because it definitely intersected with the kind of whole race science issue, male, educated, upper-class individuals. And if a measure didn't come up with that as that kind of person is the winner, then the metric was rejected. Clearly something wrong with the metric if it came up with a measure that looked as though women were better at something. So that was very much the beginning. And there's some wonderful quotes very early on about, you know, women, uh, bright women were so rare, they were like the, as rare as a, a two-headed gorilla, for example. So there was a very clear belief at the time. That's not one of yours, is it? <laughs> no, <laughs> but echoed by, I'm afraid, one of the greatest scientists of all time, Charles Darwin, who was very much of the belief that women were inferior, lower down the evolutionary scale. And, you know, he echoed very much the, the thinking of the time, which is what was really true of brain science and how it emerged. And this is with evidence to the contrary, even at that point. Even at that point. Um, but then... So they, even, even Darwin's not impervious to cognitive dissonance, for example. Yes, that's right. It was interesting tracking how it was proved that men were in, were in had superior brains. So at one point, there was what we now still believe is that the frontal lobes, the front part of the brain, are very important for key skills. And there was lots of papers showing how men had bigger frontal lobes. And then there was a fashion for a different part of the brain, parietal lobes, which deals with spatial processing, visuospatial processing. And there was a worrying output of data suggesting women had bigger parietal lobes and therefore that would suggest that they were superior so there was a nice kind of uh, rewriting of you know a bit like we're looking at nowadays retraction of papers saying where they thought that homo frontalis was actually superior now they were thinking that homo parietalis should actually be acknowledged as the head of the of any kind of evolutionary scale and then that uh, fashion reversed so yes there was a very clear aim that you should prove the answer that you'd already settled on. And I suppose not a lot of incentive uh, for people to to change the status quo, right? Which is a very common problem in, in science and ironically for Darwin, even evolution. <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. I mean, because uh, the people in power were the people in power, the scientists were males, you did shift slightly from the kind of inferiority claim to complementarity. So they started saying, yes, women's brains were different and they gave them different skills. But the skills they gave them were things like uh, intuition um, and emotion uh, understanding. And they were on the on a par with animals. Uh, so, yes, women had particular skills which made them good at 
certain things, usually, again, in quotes, being womanly companions and good wives and mothers, etc. So there was still a move that there was a kind of useful set of skills that this particular set of individuals should have. And luckily, they had a brain which gave them those. And of course, behind all of this, which we might get onto later, was if something's biological, you know, your brain is determined by your biology, that's regretfully, as you may, <laughs> inconvenient truth is another phrase which comes up again, is something that you might think, well, actually, much as we might like some kind of equality and diversity, people's brains just don't fit that kind of agenda. And this is this is kind of the um, neurotrash and, uh, you know, neurosexism that you talk about, right? Well, neurotrash and neurosexism, I use them in two different ways. And that, that brings us right into the beginning of the this century, the end of the last century, when brain imaging emerged. And we started to get these wonderfully, and the term is used a lot, seductive images, which really made us think, at last, we can look at intact living human brains in intact living humans. We will understand how they get to do what they do. And you get these lovely colour-coded uh, images, which which are very compelling, always used on the Sunday supplements, popular science. Neurotrash authors, the ones I call neurotrash, were individuals who were very much in the kind of self-help guru market. And they uh, had been pushing this idea that men and women brought different things to relationships, for example, the, the basis of the what I call the granddaddy of all the neurotrash books, uh, men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And so it was great when you got these wonderful pictures, which appeared to show, oh, look, you know, a woman's brain lights up on both sides when she's using language and a man only on one side. A woman's brain lights up all over when she hears a baby crying and a, a man doesn't show any change at all. So it, it was, again, compelling use of this kind of evidence to tell a particular story. So that would be the neurotrash where ill-advised authors misrepresented what goes on. Neurosexism has a slightly different meaning in how it's currently used. It was a term coined by Cordelia Fine, where she's looking with some anxiety, as I do, at uh, today's neuroscience research and says there is still a very powerful hunt the difference agenda informing the questions that people are asking, informing what they publish, informing how they interpret their data, etc. The term neurosexism is really saying this is research which is um, maintaining, sustaining the stereotypes we, which we feel are not represented by the science. Understood. I guess I'd like to know what you think the main opportunity for us is in understanding the gendered brain from a neuroimaging perspective. So other than obviously trying to force people against cognitive dissidence and just looking at facts, um, but people can obviously be quite stubborn even with facts and hold on to their beliefs. Um, I'm wondering what, what, what else you think might be the, the opportunities in turning some of those opinions around? I think the key thing is very compelling image of how tiny the differences actually are. Because at some point we need to, I need to establish, maybe now, I'm not a sex difference denier. I do think that there are differences in the brain, but they're generally very tiny. Whereas the variability within groups of men and groups of women is huge. And I think that's really important to understand how variable the brain is. And in fact, the origin of the book that I've written called The Gendered Brain um, was really because I was interested in how individual brains were different. Why everybody's brain is so different from everybody else's. And that's why I wanted to call it 
Fifty Shades of Grey matter at some point, but it got... But what happened? <laughs> well, the publishers felt it lacked gravitas, I think. And uh, oh, What a shame. That's a terrible decision. Yes, uh, that's right. So I think, well, I think they hoped that the book might outlast the the understanding the of what the Fifty Shades of Grey illusion was meant to be. But I, I think the key issue is to bear in mind that everybody's brain is different from everybody else's. I'm not trying to say men's and women's brains are the same. I'm saying they are different and it's it's understanding how they get to be different, which is what 21st century neuroscience has really brought us. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Brain Care Podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And follow us at Your Heights on Instagram and Twitter for daily doses of brain care. Did you know Heights started as a newsletter that I've written every week for years? I'm still doing it, and I'd love it to reach your inbox too. So, for weekly science-backed emails on the best ways to take care of your most important organ all in under three minutes, sign up at yourheights.com forward slash Sundays. See you next week.